you have your scriptures, open them to Ephesians chapter 6. We're getting to uh, the final part of this uh, epistle, but certainly not the least important. I think Paul hits on some things here that are so important. Ephesians 6, we're going to start at verse 10. Now, hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you may extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel for which... I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. This uh, section is really quite amazing and we'll take a few minutes to look at it. But I don't know how many of you uh, enjoy movies, but one movie I think almost everyone enjoys is The Wizard uh, Wizard of Oz. It's one of my favorites. It's the favorite of my granddaughter. She'll watch it over and over again. And uh, one of my favorite parts in The Wizard of Oz is when they're in the haunted forest and uh, Judy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion are going to kill the Wicked Witch uh, and get her broom. And so they're locked arm in arm and they're trembling and going into this haunted forest and there's all these creepy noises and and all of that and finally the scarecrow says I think there are spooks in this forest and the cowardly lion has his tail you know and he's wringing his tail he's going oh do you think there really are spooks in the forest and the tin man very rationally very modern says there's no such things as spooks and, and then he starts giving his reasons why you can't believe in spooks. And what happens? The tin man goes up into the air and he's carried over here and he's dropped down and all the noises start, all the creepy noises, and the cowardly lion is crying and wringing his tail and saying, I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do believe in spooks. This is very theological. It is very theological because in that scene, if you have eyes to see it, in that scene, what you're looking at is humanity's approach to the supernatural. A continuum, if you will, a line, a continuum. And on one end, you have 
the uh, tin man. There's no such thing as spooks. There's no such thing as devils and demons and spiritual powers. Why, that, 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 you know, that's just superstition. On the other hand, you have the cowardly lion who everything is superstition. Everything, the, devil's gonna get, the devil's everywhere. He's behind every door. And in the middle, you have the scarecrow. Yes, he's scared, and, but he's also very reasonable because he has a brain. Of course, he's going to get more brain, but he has a brain. And he's saying, you know, I think there are spooks here. He's trying to be very reasonable and rational about the spooks. And that is mankind's approach to the supernatural. And you find every, it's a continuum, it's a line, and everybody's on that line somewhere. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Screwtape Letters, and by the way, I just picked up Screwtape Letters again. I've read it I don't know how many times, and I read this portion uh, in preparation for today. And I recommend Screwtape Letters for summer reading because it's pretty intense. And so summer's a good time when you can just sit out in the backyard or maybe over a cup of coffee and read through the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. But in his introduction, Lewis says this. Listen carefully because it's brilliant and it sets the stage for what we're going to talk about. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, human race, two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The tin man. Disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devil's everywhere. Flip Wilson, theology. The devil made me do it. See, nobody knows Flip Wilson. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? Geraldine. The devil made me do it, honey. <laughs> All right. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. The devils, Satan, they themselves, listen, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, what C.S. Lewis is, is saying is that Satan and his demons would be very happy if you didn't believe they exist. They'd be delighted if you didn't believe in them. At the same time, they'd love it if you were scared to death and wringing your tail and crying all the time over the devil. They would love that. And a lot of modern people, a lot of church people say, well, okay, I want to be nuanced. I want to be balanced. So I'm going to find myself somewhere in the middle. I believe in demons, but you know, there's also the natural. And Paul doesn't do that. Like so much of Scripture and like so much of what we see in the Bible, he goes full on and says it's 100% demon, 100% human resonating with evil. Okay? And that's what Paul does so magically, so wonderfully, so profoundly in his letters. And he gives us a gospel grammar, a way to think about evil about supernatural, about the devil and demonic, and also about human participation in that. So this morning, uh, for your outline, here we go. Let's, let's just jump in. I'm going to give you three gospel grammar components. First of all, he's going to talk about the battle. The battle, the battleground. What it is, where it is. 
what goes on there. Secondly, he's going to talk about the enemy, who the enemy is, what he's all about, his characteristics. And finally, he's going to allude to the victor. The victor, where you must go to find victory over uh, these powers. So let's look first at the battle. Paul's tone, if you listened, and I, I didn't try to inflect too much, but if you listen, you can hear a cadence to this part of the letter. He's marching, you can hear the drums beating, you can hear the trumpets blowing, you can hear the battle cry coming in Paul's words. There's a cadence, a militant Marshal, those of you in the military understand that word, a martial tone to his uh, grammar, the way he puts his words together. He wants us to know that he's calling us to battle. And he says, finally, but that word finally, in fact, you may want to correct your Bible, that, that, that finally, when we read it as in English, I don't know why the translators did this, but they all do it. They put finally... Do this. But finally is really not the best word. It means henceforth or going forward or from this point forward. We think Paul is saying finally in conclusion this. As if this was the last part of his discourse. But really he's saying this is where you're going now forward. Going ahead. You're going ahead in order to fight these battles that are spiritual in nature. What does he tell us about them? First, he says they are in the heavenly realms. What Paul is trying to get to is that it is so easy for us to look around our world and assign everything to some material cause. But what Paul is saying is underneath... And behind all of that is something else. And that the heart of man, here's where it, I want you to keep your thinking caps on, try to stay alert and awake. I know it's early and you know we're thinking about the picnic, but try to think deeply here for a second. What he's saying is that the heart of man and these evil forces have something in common. And if God had not interrupted that commonality in the garden and said, no, I'm going to put enmity between the woman and the demon, Satan, the serpent. I'm going to create enmity between you or, or hostility. If God had not done that, imagine the human race would have become completely allied with the serpent. But God creates alienation. He creates hostility. And if you think that your hostility towards evil is your own goodness, you're just not thinking right. You're not thinking clearly about yourself. And we have in us a propensity to resonate with evil. It's self-serving. It looks good. It, he says, look how good it looks. Uh, it's good to eat. Look how pretty it is. The, the, the devil shows us the beauty and the good that you may get from breaking God's commands. 
So these battles are taking place in heavenly realms. There is a spiritual component. And Paul uses the same phrase that he uses back in 2.6, chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, God has raised you up and seated you in a heavenly realm. So what he's saying is that the Christian life is a life in which you are living both one foot that world, one foot this world. You have dual citizenship. And this, folks, look, just to be very frank, this is where a lot of our struggles come. They come from that tension that we all feel. Everyone in this room feels that tension. I'm a professional holy person. And I feel that tension. And so I know that you feel that tension. It doesn't matter who you are. We all feel that tension. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ felt it Himself. The God-man. He felt the tension. My soul, He said, is so troubled, so conflicted, almost to the point where I feel like I'm going to die. Incredible that the Son of God Himself would feel that tension. If He felt it, how much more? Us. We feel the tension of living in two worlds and with those worlds pulling and pulling and pressing on us at all times. He also says that it's in the context of relationships. So the battle is in heavenly realms. The battle is also in the context of relationship. And that's why he puts it right after this part about wives submitting, husbands loving, children obeying, masters and servants respecting one another. It comes right after that. Because where, folks, honestly, where do you have the majority of your problems? Where are they? Everybody say together, relationships. Say it relationships that's where we have our trouble you know my my lawnmower every once in a while i have to pull it two three times to get it to start i really have to work hard but that's not a conflict that's nothing compared to the human conflicts we have do you see relationships are most difficult they require you to look deeply into your own selfishness and at the same time exercise a certain protocol of love and graciousness and spaciousness towards the other person. And that can be very challenging. For the best person, it can be very challenging. Thirdly, he says the battle is a wrestle. He used a very specific Greek word here. Wrestling means hand-to-hand combat. Now, I, I watched a video this week. Uh, every once in a while, these videos are rolling around the internet. All of you have seen them, and it's a picture of a camera, you know, and there's some terrorists down there, and the camera's way up here that's a drone, right? And somebody in Tampa, Florida is flying the drone, and they launch, and the terrorists are, are blown up, and, you know, everybody says hooray. And, uh, uh, and it's pretty cool to watch that. But we could ask Austin, who's been on the battlefield, or we could ask Steve, who's been on the battlefield. And, and there's a difference between shooting at somebody 300 yards away and in hand-to-hand combat with knives drawn, and you're looking the enemy in the eye. Blood and sweat and stink and horror and fear, and you're this close. 
And that's what our battles are, folks. Very often, they can be battles against people, perhaps people in your family, people you love, maybe somebody at work, but they can also be the battles that we fight in our own selves. And I remember Steve Brown telling us at seminary in our practical theology class, Steve Brown's trying to teach us how to be pastors. you know. And he says, men... You've got to be able to look the demon in the face. He's talking about our demons, our personal demons. You've got to be able to look the demon in the face and kiss him on the lips. You've got to be able to draw that near to those things in your life that are causing you to follow Satan or follow the demonic or go off the rails. He's saying you have to be honest. You have to wrestle. It's a battle, flesh and bone against spiritual forces. And we're in war. And it's a hand-to-hand combat. You don't have the luxury of sitting in your, hand, your house with a remote control and bombing Satan way out there. No, he's with you. And I came, from, I came through many traditions. My story, I hope in a few weeks I can tell you my story. But I've been in every kind of church you can imagine. From Eastern Orthodox, which I was raised in, to, uh, to wild, hanging from the chandeliers. I don't know what they would do in this church. There's no chandeliers. They would put some up. Swinging from the chandeliers, tongue-talking, casting out the devil, rebuking the devil, Pentecostal churches. Right? And many of you have been in those places. Many of you have been in those churches. And it's everything from the tin man to the scarecrow to the cowardly lion. It's everything. And what I'm suggesting is that Paul gets off that continuum altogether and creates a whole other continuum that's completely different. We wrestle. It's hand-to-hand combat. And if you don't use the church, if you don't have people in your life that you trust, close friends, hopefully a few, maybe one or two, that you, can, that you can talk to and say, here are my demons. I'm not talking about personal possess, you know, like you're possessed. I'm talking about those things that keep you up at night. If there's no one that you can talk to, no one that can help you, give you feedback, talk therapy, whatever you want, what, a, a, a sounding board, I don't know what it is. Some of you are married to that person, great. Use them. But if you're not, you've got to have someone, an accountability person, who you can bounce those things off of. Someone you can trust. Why? Because of the next point, the the fourth one. We live in a present darkness. A present darkness. There is light and dark. And Satan knows how to use them both. Yes? He can use darkness and he can use light. In fact, in Corinthians, he says he appears sometimes as an angel of light. And what he does is he tells you the truth, folks. His, one of his strategies is to tell us the truth and then stuff it with a lie. Tell the truth, stuff it with a lie. And so it looks good, it sounds good, it tastes good. But once you eat it, there's something bitter and it goes down and it goes down bad. And we all have experienced that. So there's a present darkness and Satan knows how to use darkness and light. Finally, there's an evil day. Verse 13. This is all from verse 12, but now we're moving to 13. He talks about you must be able to resist him in the evil day. 
Now, commentaries and scholars differ on this, and I'm going to give you both views, or at least two views. And uh, one view is that the, the, the evil day is speaking of an apocalyptic, a future day that Paul is foreseeing. And Paul's saying there's this future day coming where if you don't do these things, you won't stand in that final day. This future apocalyptic day. But then there's another view which says that day could be any day, and that day is the day of confluence, when things come together and we actually commit the sin. That is the evil day. Now, it could mean both because the, uh, Paul was a little ambiguous here, and often the Greek writers and the, Old Test- the New Testament writers were intentionally ambiguous to leave room for interpretation. We don't like that. We want everything black and white, black and white. But they were very gray. They were very nuanced. They were very good at not making everything black and white so that we had room to move within the context of the Scripture. And so Paul says, there's this evil day, and the evil day could be either one, that day of confluence. That's where the battle takes place. And the Apostle James actually codifies this very familiar Scripture. Listen carefully. I'm going to read from James uh, chapter 2. Or James chapter 1, sorry. Let no one say, here it is, the evil day. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself tempts no one. But each one, listen folks, here it is. This is pure gold. Each one is tempted when lured, enticed by his own desire. And he uses a word desire in the Old, in the old versions, King James, it, it uses the word lust. But this word is the Greek word epithumia. Thumia is desire. Epithumia is over-desire. And over-desire can be for bad things, and over-desire can be for good things. But over-desire for anything, good or bad, is considered bad. Because that good thing will take you to bad places. Chocolate chip cookies are good, yes? They're wonderful, see? They're, they're wonderful. But two boxes full are not good. So you can take a good thing. You can take your marriage. Let's be more practical. You can take your marriage and make it an idol. and Say, I'm all about my marriage. I'm all about my kids. I'm all about my work. I'm all about my church. I'm all about Reformed theology. I'm all about John Calvin. I'm all about election and predestination. That's got a stinging a few people. All of those good things can become idols. And so we can't let anything, not our children, not our marriage, not our job, not our church, not our theology, nothing can come between you and your Savior. The only one who deserves epithumia is Him. He deserves it all. And this is what Paul is saying, and John and James as well. So that's the battle. What about the enemy? Let's get on with the enemy real quick. The enemy is a personal demon. Satan himself and all of his demons. And we don't have time to get into all of the demonology and all that. But look, if you find a book, let me just give you a, a, a little... Here, careful. Here we go. If you find a book in the Christian bookstore and it's thicker than this, 
Are you seeing how tiny that is? It's a quarter of an inch. If you see a book in the Christian bookstore and it's thicker than this about demons and Satan, don't buy it. Because the rest of it is bull, to use a Texas phrase. It is bull. I didn't use the whole phrase, but it's bull. You know what I'm saying, right? Okay, it's bull. It, you, you, there's not that much in the Bible about the devil. Why not? He's not the main character. The main character is God and His people. So you can read a lot about them. And every so often, Satan pops up on the horizon somewhere, and he's formidable, and God takes him deadly serious whenever he does form. But there's only a little bit written. So all these big volumes on Satan and demonology, don't read them. Are you listening to me? I'm your pastor. You have to do everything I say. Do not read them, because most of it is malarkey. Okay. Let's talk about the devil. He exists. He's a real person. He's also the embodiment of evil. So there's both a personal aspect to him, but there's an also an embodiment uh, aspect to him. And Paul talks about the schemes of the diabolos. We all know what that means. Diabolos means the slanderer, the accuser, the liar, the tempter. What we often think is that Satan has exertive power. In other words, that he can lift pianos and he can do all kinds of things. He can make you sin. He has control over you. And that is generally not true. Uh, the tin man aside. Satan's power almost exclusively is in his mouth. He is like Saruman in Lord of the Rings. Have any of you read Lord of the Rings? You know the white wizard Saruman that changes his colors. Saruman uses his voice to deceive people. And Satan uses his voice to deceive people. He could not take Adam and Eve and cram the apple or the kiwi or whatever the fruit was into their mouth. No, he had to entice them. He had to tempt them, and then once he had tempted them, then he accused them. So it's a complex. He tempts and he accuses his, his victims. And so the schemes of the Diabolos, that's who you're dealing with, a liar. And one of the things that we fall for, folks, is that we listen to those lies. In fact, we begin to tell ourselves those lies. I caught myself this week telling myself lies. But I had, unfortunately, I'd been reading my Bible and preparing for this lesson, and so I got hammered. And the Holy Spirit rose up in me and said, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. Don't listen to that lie. That lie's not true of you. You're not that person. I had said something about, well, I'm, I've always been this way. I'm talking to myself. I didn't tell my wife. Now she knows. Yikes. But I'm talking to myself. I go, you know, I've always been this way. Me, 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 you know. And then it rose up in me and said, no, no, no. You're not that man. Resist him. He will flee from you. And I had to do, I mean, I, I had to do it. Okay. So the schemes of the devil are to lie, to tempt, to, to cause us to doubt. And we have to be aware, recognize what he's doing. John Stott says this, I love it. It's a combination of tactical shrewdness, those you military guys will get this, tactical shrewdness, ingenious, and deception. 
with a wide-ranging uh, array of sinister, cosmic, and dark tools. He's been around a long time. He is extremely intelligent, and he knows your weak spots. And if you're one of those people, and I've met them and I've been one of them, if you're one of those people that have a blind side, a blind spot in your life, and you don't like to talk about certain things, and I don't want anybody pointing that out about me, that's where he'll go. This is why you need somebody that you can trust who can expose the, 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 the spot and, and you will listen to them. and Say, you know what, you're a little short-tempered. Or you know what, you have a lot of pride. Or you know what, you have a lot of anger. You know what, you're passive-aggressive. I sat across the table from a lady in Florida. Of course, I had paid her a lot of money, and so I, was, I had to listen. And she described me after a few minutes, and I wanted to wring her neck, but she was absolutely true. And it broke me. She said some very unkind things, didn't she, Marty B? She was hard, wasn't she? Why was she hard on me and not on you? She was so nice to you. I don't know. Anyway, I benefited greatly. She laid me low. And God the Holy Spirit worked in my heart. He made me soft and I listened. I didn't listen completely, but I listened. listened. All right, let's move on. He has schemes. He has methodia. That's the word schemes is translated uh, in your Bible. Schemes is the Greek word methodia. He has strategies. These strategies that he uses, he knows your weaknesses. And if you won't admit your weaknesses, if you won't look at yourself, and admit your weakness, that's where he'll get you. So admit your weaknesses. He causes us to doubt. Yea, hath God said? That was Satan's first thing. Has God said that? Questioning what God has said about you. And then he tempts us. What Tim Keller says, and I love this. Uh, Keller, I think, hits something really important. Temptation is this. Listen, folks, you get, this is brilliant. He hides God's holiness and plays up His love, grace, and forgiveness. So when you hear a preacher, all they want to talk about is grace, grace, love, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. They never talk about holiness. They never talk about obedience. They never talk about beating your body into subjection. You've got a problem. All right? So they downplay holiness and they upplay love, grace, and forgiveness, which creates presumption in the heart of the Christian, ah, God will forgive me, right? The other side of that is accusation. He hides God's love, grace, and forgiveness, and he upplays God's wrath, God's judgment, your unholiness, your unworthiness. So, Christ the King, what is it? Which end of it is it? What? It's both. It's 100% God's holiness and demand for obedience, and that's 100% grace and love and forgiveness. It's not somewhere in between. It's not even on that continuum. It's 100%. And the only place where all that meets and makes any kind of sense is where? Where does it all meet? Where is the confluence? Where do all the streams run together and explode? Where? At the cross. Holiness, justice, righteousness meet perfect love and grace and forgiveness and a man dies. 
so that you and I can experience both. Do you see it? The glory of the cross. These demons are not flesh and blood, but they do work with um, human agency. And so, rather than finding some middle ground scarecrow, find the scarecrow, get in the middle. Oh, there are demons, but you know what? I've got my little gun and we can stop them. You know, instead of the scarecrow, instead of the tin man, instead of the cowardly lion, Paul takes us off that grid. He takes us off that line and he creates, I wish I had my blackboard. I would love to show you the diagram maybe in another time. But imagine two lines. One is pure evil, Satan and his demons. The other line is you and every other human being and hearts that are broken and sinful. And what he's doing is he's, he's, he's singing a song and he's wanting you to answer the chorus of that song with the chorus. And so we start to resonate with him. And to the degree that human beings give themselves over to his lies, you see the Holocaust. You see ISIS. You see your own heart doing things and going places you never would have imagined. Yes? Wherever we are resonating, those two lines where they're vibrating together, and the more we listen and the more we give in to Him, and the more we let indulge ourselves because of either too much holiness or not enough holiness, or too much grace, not enough grace, whatever the case may be, there's the problem. And these rulers, he said, they're powerful. Uh, look at what he says. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces. Why is this important? Well, Paul is giving us a grammar. Let me end with this because I don't want to go on and on and on, although I think there's plenty of material we could go on about. Paul, what Paul is doing, before we ever get into the armor, you know, I have been around Christianity enough now, I know... How many of you bought that silly armor for your children? You're not going to admit it, are you? Nobody is going to raise their hand. I was hoping. See, I did, and I'm an idiot, right? So I can, I can admit it. The shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. We buy these toys for our children. And in so doing, we mythologize the truth. Now, I understand there's lessons and all that. If you can manage that, good. I wasn't good at it. Uh, but maybe you are better. But... Before you ever get into all of the armor, and the armor is where we're going to go next week, so come back for that. You don't want to miss. Okay? Shameless commercial. We don't have time for the armor. But before you ever get to the armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, sword of the Spirit, loins girt about, you know, all of that, before you ever get to the shoes and the helmet and all the cool gear, you have to get to Jesus. Because Paul's grammar, folks, listen carefully, it doesn't change. It never changes. The guy's brilliant. And so he says this, in conclusion, no. Finally means henceforth. From this point forward, here's the grammar I want you to have. Listen carefully, folks. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in in the strength of what? His might. Put on, take up what? The whole armor. Of who? Of God. Do you see the brilliance of Paul? He reorients 
the person. He knows he's going to, now he's going to give you all the cool gear and all the armor and all that, and it is great. And we're going to look at it, you're going to love it. But before he ever does that, he says, you can get excited about the armor only when you find out whose armor it is, whose strength it is, whose power it is. Listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? Listen to how he describes the strongholds of Satan. Where the battle is going to take place with the enemy I just described. Here's where it is. Undoing, confronting every argument every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Where is the the battle raging in us? In our mind. And if you will give yourself time each day to arm yourself with that armor, knowing that it's His armor, then you have success in defeating Satan. You see, the answer in Paul's mind, here it is, folks. Listen at least to this. The answer in Paul's mind is, Satan is a who, not a what. And because Satan is a who and not a what, the whats are infinite and there's no end to them. But the who, you can get your head around that. Who? And if the who, if the enemy is a who, what do you think the victor is? What do you think? A who? Let me end with this. What shall we say to these things? He's talking about all of these things. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, what? What? Who? Do you see the brilliance of this, folks? The what's are infinite. Depending on who you are and your life circumstances, they could be infinite. We could never figure out all the what's. All we would be doing is treating the symptoms if we work on the what's. Yes? But if you get to the who, you cure the disease. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, he, he who did not spare his only son gave him up for us all. How will he not all Paul is pleading here? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The accusations that keep us down, you're not worthy. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn accusation? Christ is the one who died. More than that, He was the one who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? Temptation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, danger, or or anything else for your sake, we are being killed all day long, but we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No! 
in all these things we are what? More than conquerors through Him who loved us. Don't forget that part. More than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure how could Paul say that with any integrity while he's sitting in a jail under the sentence of death unless he believed what I'm pleading with you to believe? I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? What? The love of God. I don't like bumper sticker theology. You all know that. So throw away the old bumper sticker that says when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. There is no knot. You have been bound, folks, with cords of love. Unbreakable cords of love. You say, well, you don't know what I did. It doesn't matter what you did. What matters is what you do with this. Will you bow your knee? Will you give your heart to Jesus Christ? Will you say yes to Him? Will you take all your mess to Him and take it to Him for the rest of your life? The mess isn't going to go away when you get to be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or however long God gives you. The mess remains. Will you go with all of it to Him? He loves you and gave Himself for you. Will you do it? I hope you will. I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, we face some terrible enemies, all of us, in our lives, and I don't even begin to know what everyone is facing. I know what mine are, and some I don't, but I know that without constantly resorting to Your love, we would be lost. And so, Father, I pray that this day, uh, as we start this last little bit of Ephesians, that You will burn down deeply into the heart of each person here the grammar of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ did something first and foremost for us that stands above everything else. And that is His life on the cross for us. Help us to embrace it, Father. Let that inform everything that we do. I pray that You'll do it. Please, for Christ's sake and in His name, I pray that You'll do it, Father. May this day be a day of new beginnings for us as we love Him and give ourselves to Him. I pray this in His name. Amen.